don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit like... Uh, Hello and welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode 33, Larry Bird, and today we are finishing... Christ crucified. <laughs> and today we're uh, ending October, wrapping it up with This Changes Everything from 2015, uh, based on and narrated by, well, based on the book This Changes Everything by Naomi Klein and narrated by Naomi, Naomi Klein, directed by uh, Avi Lewis, who we just found out is her husband. Uh, so that's interesting and uh, produced as the opening titles tell you in big bold letters by Alfonso Cuaron. Um, so yeah, a documentary based on a book. So it's just as exciting as you would imagine. It's fucking boring. <laughs> it, it really is. It's kind of a shame. <laughs> it's, it's it. I mean, it is an extremely faithful adaptation of her book. I'll say that. Yeah, because the book is also not exactly a page turner. I don't think anybody right. is it's, like staying up all night to to fly through. This changes everything, right? No, it's it's really not like, it, like it says, it's inspired by the book, but the book is huge and sprawling, and you know the movie's an hour and a half, and so it sort of has to pick, you know, pick what it's going to concentrate on, and and it seems to have a bit of a hard time doing that. Yeah, um, I, uh, I remember I, I submitted a paper one time for uh, uh, <clears throat> like peer review, trying to get it published. And uh, I got a comment back that said uh, the writer is trying to do way too many things and is failing at all of them. <laughs> and I was thinking about that watching this movie like they're, they're trying to do a lot of things, but they're kind of doing, you know, they're not doing any one thing particularly well or in a particularly original or meaningful way. Yeah. And I have, so I have the book in front of me and it's without notes, it's 466 pages. So, you know, pretty sizable kind of tome that came out in 2014. So the year before the documentary and it is, you know, this kind of slog to get through, but at the same time, it's still a very important book. Right. I don't think anybody who has any kind of knowledge or sympathy for or is in agreement with uh, those who study and talk about climate change would say that it's, you know, not one of the big sort of new climate change uh, tomes, I guess. Right. Like you, we go all the way back to environmentalist literature and uh, Rob Nixon, who we've talked about before on the podcast, has call, called this book, This Changes Everything, the, the new Silent Spring or the Silent Spring for this era. I, I really think if there's, if, uh, if there's three books you should read to understand sort of contemporary climate change culture, I think you should read This Changes Everything first because it touches on all of the issues. Uh, and then I think you should read Rob Nixon's book, Slow Violence and the Environmentalism of the Poor. And then I think you should read The Great Derangement by Amitav Ghosh. I think those three books are pretty solid and pretty wide ranging. Yeah, definitely. And it, it, just talking about kind of the the library, the climate change library, um, 
so I, I've kind of been noticing how much older stuff, older environmentalist literature, uh, still applies to today, which is kind of sad. Because <laughs> yeah, uh, nothing's changed. Yeah, yeah. Especially, I started recently because I sadly never read it before, but I started reading uh, a Sand County Almanac by Aldo Leopold, oh, yeah. um, which is not, you know, a very big book. And he wrote it in like 1946 or something. Mm-hmm. And I'm reading through it and he has the same <laughs> sorts of complaints. Right. Um, and the same sorts of calls to action that you see and, Naomi Klein with. And, and you know, that's what's so now. frustrating to me about like academic writing is I mean, just by design, it builds on previous, you know, previous scholarship. But like you said, I mean, Aldo Leopold said it in 1946 and the stuff that he's talking about has not, you know, has not done any, uh, there's been no changes with that. And you can just really feel the rift between the subjects of like academic ecological books and reality because uh, there's there's progress in how we talk about nature and the environment and how we depict climate catastrophe and how you know artists depict humans relationship with nature but all that is happening apart from <clears throat> from the from the real world of political you know of uh, environmental destruction the i, I wish i, I Maybe someday we'll make a uh, like a timeline of like years that books were published, like 1962, Silent Spring, and then, you know, whatever, 89, The End of Nature by Bill McKibben. And then, uh, you know, 2014, this changes everything and just show in those same years and in between, everything's gotten worse. So, like, clearly these books are not doing anything. Yeah. And which makes you also by extension think like these documentaries are also not accomplishing as much, although probably being seen by more people than are reading these books. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, So this one to sort of turn back to real quick um, takes a, a pretty common approach. There's a sort of genre convention in these climate change documentaries where they become they become kind of globe trotting and they travel to a lot of different places to show you different impacts of things i'm thinking of like you know Gasland, um especially the second the sequel he travels to australia and talks to some people there about fracking and stuff uh so in this film we start out in alberta and canada which makes sense because klein is canadian and then we uh, move and then we move down yeah. to uh, to Montana and then to Greece and then to India and then to China. Uh, so we kind of start with the sort to of talk about how uh, <clears throat> how bad burning fossil fuels are. We have to travel all over the world. <laughs> it wasn't enough to to go to the one place. Um, and I will <laughs> say like of all these different locales that they go to the most interesting to me uh was probably the first one in alberta when they go to the the tar sands um the oil sands uh, yeah they're at that bar Mm -hmm. that part that's exactly what i was going to bring up yeah where they they go to that bar that's just like all the the guys that have moved there to to work on the the sands and the one guy says like i work half a year and i make one hundred and fifty thousand dollars or something like that and they're all just like 
pouring shots and having a good time. And the one guy the like dude wipes his nose yeah. with a dollar or something. He's like, excuse me, I gotta blow my nose, and then like blows it into like a hundred yeah. dollar. Not real dollars, Canadian dollars, but a hundred dollar bill. <laughs> not real dollars. Yeah. It's not real money. And and so you get that contrasted with the uh the indigenous people, right? The the Cree, I believe it was that they they go and they try to get access to these lands that you know under the sort of national laws and treaties of Canada belongs to them and they are turned away by a fat white dude who tries right. to be polite while doing it which is very canadian and weird it's so infuriating because you anytime you hear about this legislation passed like protecting indigenous people's rights to land I, i'm always skeptical of that it's like okay it, it feels so theoretical. It's like, okay, but you've basically made the area uninhabitable. It's not like people actually are, uh, you know, the people trying to gain access to this land are not living out there because the area has been desecrated and they've been scattered all over. And so it's just like this political sort of gesture when they, you know, they have the constitutional right to access to this land but you see when the rubber meets the road they, they can't get out there yeah and the guy is telling you well you need to call this person and they call that person as well you should call this person and they're the everybody they talk to is very condescending um it's just yeah. you know disheartening in a lot of ways and you see how i think they they talk about it as the the, the oil sands as being the the largest industrial project on the planet Mm -hmm. um, and they show you these kind of aerial shots of it and it just, it looks like a wasteland. It looks like, like fucking Mordor, like in any bad landscape you can imagine from any film or anything in reality, this just looks worse than that. Yeah. There was some statistic like one day's waste could like fill an entire dam. Yeah. It was like one of the largest dams in the world was built to hold back all this yeah you know shit um and if that ever is compromised you can imagine what the spill would be like and then the the lack of a reaction um yeah and it's and it's kind of presented as hopeful at the end when you have the the young guy who's like yeah me and all my friends at work there you know we we wish we could go work on a wind farm instead or whatever but you know, we, we, you know, until that happens, I guess we'll keep doing this. So he, it's kind of suggested that he's there to be like, oh no, we've had a change of heart, but he's still going to go put in his, you know, 14 hour shift on the rig and, mm -hmm. and make his ton, his stack of money and go home. But I, I do like how much, um, the movie kind of shows you governments are very much implicit in these kinds of things. And it just makes me think of that because Trudeau, even though he just won re-election, uh, has come under fire for his handling of the, the tar sands and, and promises he's made that he hasn't kept and how he's just sort of like being very backhanded about the building of new pipelines and things like that. Um, and in this film, something I really appreciated was that clip of Obama talking about uh, how much oil America has produced under under his watch and how, you know, we're drilling every single day and, and we're drilling everywhere. Yeah. And said, uh, we're drilling all over the place. Yeah. Which is a very Obama way of phrasing that, but it just it's, shows you like, sounds like a very Sarah Palin way of phrasing that. 
But it just shows you sort of how just implicit any kind of, you know, neoliberal politician is with these kinds of things. And no matter what their rhetoric is on everything else or on the environment, they're making moves to, you know, keep drilling all over the place and to keep, you know, extracting more oil or more gas or whatever it is, uh, whatever is going to sort of meet that the bottom line, they're going to keep doing it. Yeah, it's like the difference between a liberal and a conservative is like <clears throat> how much how how much you're willing to apologize for your environmental destruction. Yeah, which is uh, either which is very inevitable. little or not at all. <laughs> right, right. And I, it is just kind of mind blowing to see that, and all that is kind of sanctioned by this uh, call for energy. So, well, not sovereignty. What's the word I'm looking for? Independence, like yeah. in energy independence. Uh, fear that you know, what if what if we can no longer get the oil that we went to war in the Middle East for, and so we have to stockpile our own and, and have that on the go, but then we never use it because. And her whole point about the uh, the oil uh, stockpiles and stuff was really kind of well done too. They had a nice like infographic for it. Um, and this, this is the point that everyone keeps making, but no one listens to, which is you just have to keep it in the ground to have any kind of chance for a future. Yeah. And then at the end, though, it sort of backpedals a little bit where, you know, the argument is like, OK, stop drilling. We just have to stop. Whatever we do, we have to stop. Uh, and then they're talking to the guy that works on like the oil rig and he's like, I'm not for, uh, you know, stopping this project right now. We have to transition. And then it's like, okay, well, how long does that transition take? And, and what I'm saying is the movie shoots this guy and depicts this guy as like, you know, saying something true and meaningful, uh, in his, when he's talking about this transition. So I don't know how they square the idea of we have to stop drilling now and keep the oil in the ground with, Oh, let's transition because all those transition plans are like 10, 12 years. Uh, how much, you know, how much time do we have? Yeah. And even the, uh, sort of the, the reason they go to China is to talk about smog and solar panels pretty much. And the, the whole driving point there is that solar became so cheap that that's why the Chinese decided to switch and try to like corner that market. So it's just that sort of perverse thing of like, in that case, the market did one kind of good thing when usually that's not the case and it'll just bury everyone in its path to do the wrong thing. Yeah. You could, uh, I guess it's Germany that they show is sort of at the forefront of, you know, they let the scientific facts of climate change weirdly. I don't know what they were thinking. They sort of let that determine just, the decisions will. and policies that they implemented back no, just, they uh, just again, don't like they hate freedom time. they hate freedom that's all it is it must be they that. don't you know they were nazis you know that <laughs> i ain't i ain't gonna model no government off of no nazis <laughs> yeah that, that was my impression of that guy from severe county oh uh, yeah that's uh, it, so just to tell you what in case you haven't seen this there was a what is he's like a He's like a He's some sort of elected like official county alderman or some shit um, at a that was filmed at a meeting talking about how it ain't right that we got a queer running for president. 
and uh, how if we don't do anything, our grandchildren are going to suffer the consequences. Mm. And then received applause from some of his constituents. Speaking truth with a toothpick in his mouth. Yeah, it just looked like the biggest like country hoss dipshit you can imagine. Talking like a cartoon. Yeah, just fucking clown. Just a clown shoe, that man. It's uh, a clown question, bro. <laughs> so, yeah, that happened in real life. But, it, it, you know, to bring that up, it, it kind of ties into another, I think, useful part of this documentary. And we're kind of flying through this because it really... There's not a whole lot of meat on the bone as far as we're we're, we're, we're on pace for shortest episode of all time. <laughs> but the, I did like uh, the sort of political. Well, I got I, not even political, the sort of rundown she gives you of denialism. And she goes to that. Was it the Heartland Foundation? They're, the Heartland Institute. Heartland yeah. Institute, because it has to sound official. It's an institute. Right. Uh, they go to that conference and they get these people sort of talking shit. And like the lamest thing in the whole fucking movie was the guy who just on his PowerPoint showed a picture of a polar bear taking a shit and just got like <laughs> uproarious laughter. Yeah. This is like Eddie yeah. Murphy raw in the eighties laughter. This guy's getting <laughs> for this picture of a polar bear taking a shit. And everybody's like, Oh, ho, 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 ho. so subversive. And just the, the things that he says are just so, I, I can't remember his name, but he's another slimy dipshit. Mark um, something, Mar- Morano or something like that. Yeah, and just his points are Rick Moranis. Like, he calls Cole, what does he call it, like the most moral, moral choice Yeah, that society's ever made is to burn coal, which is just like, what the fuck does that even mean? Dude? Like, you just have to pick these buzzwords. You need moral, you need freedom, you have to say something about how God, we're God's chosen, and then you just, you know, let it ride, and usually it'll work out for you. His point was something like people were living in squalor and or something before coal began to be, you know, used on an industrial level. And, yeah, and then they lived in a different kind of squalor. Right. With coal dust everywhere. Uh, yeah. Because we all know the rise of industry just sort of, uh, spread magnificent wealth to all peoples. It did not create slums or anything like that. Uh, yeah, that guy was a fucking moron. Well, and then you get that like British guy who just like is a mouth breathing fucking moron, <laughs> and and they they just make this point. I don't know if it was him or somebody else that was like, if you want, if you want to grow trees, make the tree valuable to the market, and then we'll if plant you, more trees. If you want, he says, if you want more elephants, market the like Their the ivory. ivory. Create a market for the ivory. You know, for it's this sort of like, uh, um, what do you call it? like a libertarian sort of mindset? For all the freedom that that or and liberty that people like that talk about, they're really kind of have this sort of slavish orientation to the market. It's like this inscrutable force that they bow down to. Uh, it's it's their form it's magical thinking right that's kind of the phrase she keeps using in in the film and she applies it to a few different places but i think it's definitely magical thinking of the market will save us the market is correct Um, just jerking themselves off with that invisible hand (laughs) yeah exactly give themselves the the greatest stranger of all (laughs) 
Oh. And it's, I just, uh, it's just kind of sickening to, to hear them say that out loud and not be fucking just embarrassed at what is just dribbled out of their fucking cake hole. Ugh. And this is, and I mean, they get paid for like producing this bullshit. Yeah, paid a lot. Like I imagine that dude probably drives home in like a Mercedes SUV, just like, you know, doing burnouts the whole way. Fucks his flashlight. <laughs> Put, puts a Rolex around his flashlight. <laughs> um, yeah, so that, it's just that part was just kind of especially jarring because it's like you know those people are out there, but then to see them in action, it's like Jesus. And the the one guy in the crowd, the this was you know the the filmmaking in this is not great. It's pretty kind of stock for documentaries. There's nothing yeah. really special going on, but. I did like the way that they transitioned into the talk about was it like eco communism or like green communism? The fear that all the whole ecological movement is really like a Trojan horse, and the way that they introduce it is a guy in the crowd at this conference, if you can even call it that, this gathering of idiots that asks, "Is the green is the green movement really just a green Trojan horse with a belly full of communists?" that and that's not exact but that's pretty much what he says um yeah yeah i mean he says uh he sets it up in such a sheepish sort of deferential way he's like i I want you to talk about you know to what extent this uh, the green movement is a a trojan horse with a belly full of red communist socialist ideology yeah you could tell he was up all night writing that question i was like very proud of himself he was just like serving up a beach ball for them to take a whack at. Like, fuck you. Yeah, you hear somebody You're in a grown the crowd man. Behind him Have some hundred. dignity. Yeah. It's just, it, and it, I don't know it. Cause it, behind the, the kind of any kind of useful movement to combat climate change or not even combat we've already lost, but to mediate the effects of climate change as much as one can, it, it's going to take some sort of communal effort. It's going to take some sort of, more cohesive society than the one that we currently live in. Um, and to a lot of people that just automatically they're like, Oh, it's communism. So you're telling me I can't have my big house and my, my PS4 and all this shit because, because it's hot outside. Um, well, and, and you're touching on something there that I, I, for all the you know times I've criticized Naomi Klein, she does emphasize something that I think is extremely important in, in especially in her book. And in the documentary and in that recent video she released about the Trump straws, she really focuses on the idea of limits and limitations as not not as, you know, inhibitors of freedom, but as and I, you know, it's it's an idea that actually allows us to like have a context for our life. Um and the ideology of unlimited growth is just chaos, contextless chaos. Uh, so that that's one aspect that I really feel like she is tuned into that I that I very much agree with her on. Uh, and, and that's something that Wendell Berry writes a lot about too. Yeah, and that's and that's how she opens the film. Really, is she gives you this kind of ideological roadmap to you know kind of navigate what she's going to be talking about. She talks about the concept of man's dominion over nature 
and this idea of the the relationship between man and nature as a one-way relationship in which nature gives and we take um, all these sorts of things the pro the idea of progress unchecked progress that the idea that we we ran out of you know some kind of frontier some kind of place to progress towards so now we're freaking out we don't know what to do her the whole point about um europeans kind of using up all their land and hunting all their big games so then they saw the new world as like a new limitless supply of those things mm -hmm. um, I, th I think was kind of uh, presented pretty well and that kind of brings me to something i wanted to to mention because we you know every now and then we'll touch on one of these uh kind of running themes that we have in yeah. the podcast um you know like the the lack of mothers and all these kinds of things yeah uh, and so one that we definitely bring up a lot is this idea of of toxic ideologies that she talks sure. about sort of but but we've also kind of been constantly bringing them up and those are things like what she mentions right this idea of progress is always good full stop <laughs> and, and and never <laughs> never questioning that like that's definitely one of them um but you know there's a whole list of them that i think kind of uh, weave together to create this uh you know leviathan that is made up by all these denialists and people that know but don't care because they're going to benefit from it people that know but welcome chaos for whatever kind of reason right uh, all, all that kind of stuff well there was a one moment I found really interesting where in her narration, Naomi Klein kind of mixes metaphors and she says the earth is a machine. She's talking about the harmful ideology that the earth is a machine and we are its master. Yeah. Well, like I said, she mixes metaphors there, but that's really an interesting mistake. Uh, I think because, um, if the earth is a machine, you're not a master of a machine. You're like an inventor of a machine or an operator, <clears throat> excuse or me, an operator of a machine. Person. But you, you, if you're the master of something, the other thing is your slave, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and that's an, there's an important difference between a master slave relationship and a, uh, operator machine relationship because you, the, the relationship between an operator and a machine um, is is very different because it's like there's there's an indifference because because you don't recognize a machine you know you wouldn't say a machine is alive or has any sort of agency Unless you are responsible for it to me yeah uh, uh, the mechanistic worldview is is in some ways an improvement of what we have. Because what we have, I think, is a master-slave relationship with the world where we recognize um, we recognize its agency and yet continue to oppress it for our own economic benefit. Um, so, so like I said, I think a mechanistic worldview is awful and would be an improvement from what we have. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> the mind reels uh, but, but this is the point that like if it's a master slave kind of dichotomy kind of relationship it's kind of it's interesting to think about it that way because it's always a relationship where once we reach a certain level of 
exploitation or dominance over nature, it kills us, right? Like it, there's no alternative outcome, right? Like it's either, right. It's either we take care in this place and we can live in some sort of harmony with it in a changed state, or we just keep going and it kills us all. That those you, are the options. You said uh, this is completely off topic, but you said take care, and it reminded me. I'm I'm about halfway through uh, Amitabh Ghosh's book uh, Gun Island, mm-hmm. which I know you you read. And and yes. have you did you notice how how often the phrase take care is repeated? No, I didn't. Any <laughs> any any time they. Uh, characters say goodbye they don't say goodbye they, they say, say take, take care, care. It, it's happened know. like six or seven times so far no i was i was too busy trying to figure out if this if the book was ever going to become explicitly supernatural or not yeah um which you'll find out eventually well it seems to, like i said i'm halfway through and it seems to me the point is that it, 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 about the supernatural stuff is that what we experience as natural is actually sort of contained within a larger framework that should you be able to suddenly grasp this realm, you might, you might experience that as the supernatural, but that it's all sort of one thing. Uh, Anyway, I am, I'm really into this book. It's like some, Indian, like nerdy Indiana Jones stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah, kind of. It, it has, it, I don't know, the, the ending was sort of, I really liked it, but at the same time, I thought it was almost felt like he was setting it up to write another trilogy or something. Ah, uh, um, I see. And I don't know if that's the case, but it, there's definitely a, a climax that does, it sort, of, sort of answers all your questions while also not answering them at all. If that makes yeah. sense. Um, yeah. Anyway, well, we can talk about that. We'll, we'll yeah. try to do an episode. We can do a it. anthropos sentences or something on that one. Uh, but yeah, it's a it's a very readable book, and I'll go ahead and recommend it halfway through. It is a, a real kind of quick read, which is not always the case with Gosha's yeah. stuff. So, I want to sort of to to kick some game at you and and see what you, what you think of this. Because I've been listening to the audiobook of The Denial of Death. And ah. I'm about halfway through it. And I, I've been listening to it while I'm like walking the dog or doing whatever. So I'm maybe not getting, you know, every single little morsel of wisdom out of it that I could be getting. Mm-hmm. But I was really kind of taken by this idea that he talks about. And it's not his original idea. He gets it from Freud and, and other people. But he's talking about the the lie of character in human character as a, a vital lie this idea yeah. that you build up your character and your existence as an individual to give you some sort of to, to make you special basically to distract you from how sort of insignificant and fragile you are well yeah it's like <clears throat> it's to bolster the project of like personhood that like you're not this you know arbitrary assemblage of organs that you are you know you are matt spencer (laughs) yeah and i have all these i have all the stuff that proves it and all the interests 
and opinions <laughs> and, and all that kind of stuff. I have yeah. the driver's license and the social security card. <clears throat> and so it, I was just kind of thinking about that in terms of this, this kind of bigger idea of uh, modernization and, and the, the, the creation of the modern industrialized nation and all that kind of stuff and how part of that, so much of that lie of that is built upon, upon this kind of initial lie of individualism and uh, think about how much of American identity is built on this idea of the, the rugged individual or, you know, the individual who is so love their freedom that they're willing to do anything to defend them and all that sort of stuff. Um, when really we're all what Becker calls gods with anuses. <laughs> yes. So, so it it just ca- it's angels who shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He has a lot of those kinds of phrases in there. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it just kind of made me think of how a lot of this, a lot of this sort of struggle now with trying to get any sort of meaningful climate change, combative movement kind of off the ground runs up against people who are hiding behind these ideas of freedom and individual choice and the ability to be oneself and not be assumed into some sort of communal entity. Uh, and it's just, it kind of, I found that to be sort of interesting. And it's part of this, it, she kind of touches on this a little bit, but this idea, it's kind of like a death drive sort of thing of um, I'm going to ignore that this is happening. I'm going to put it to the back of back burner of my mind and I'm going to keep just like driving as fast as I can into the fucking sun. Yeah. I, you know, this is an issue. I'm glad you brought it up that I I think about this a lot. The idea of individualism versus collectivism and, and it's always framed that way. It's like individualism versus collectivism. Uh, but I think it's very complicated and I think, uh, there's a lot of good ideas to be found about this subject in Carl Jung's, the spiritual problem of modern man, uh, where he's sort of lamenting the death of the individual, but he's only able to do that in a time before, um, the real sort of, uh, you know, archetype of the rugged individual is kind of in full force because here's my opinion is that individualism is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, and I, I think you have to, I, I agree with Carl Jung's diagnosis in the spiritual problem of modern man that, uh, the, the major problem is that we don't think of ourselves as individuals. Um, but that we the, the problem with rugged individualism and, and that whole idea, that archetype, is that we're getting our sense of ourself, our individual self, from some sort of collective ideology, from some from the mass society that produces images that we are supposed to accept as the sort of wellspring of, of identity. This is where we, where we get our ourselves from. <clears throat> and so that the idea you're talking about of rugged individualism is actually a corruption of what people like Jung and, and uh, I've heard uh, Faulkner talk about it a lot. 
uh, and sort of lament in a, in a similar way to Jung, the death of the individual. Uh, it, what, what became rugged individualism uh, or what rugged individualism was, was a perversion of individualism of the individual. Um, it was a sort of artificial version of it. And another point to be made is that collectivism, like I said, is often cast as the opposite of it. But if you are just sort of allowing yourself to be subsumed into this larger ideology, whatever the collective ideology is, to me, that seems like just another way of sort of denying your experience in the world because I think the individual is the fundamental experience. You know, you're born alone, you die alone, that, that whole thing. And, and you're alone in meaningful ways in between your birth and death as well, I believe. Um, so I don't think there can be any true meaningful collectivism without a meaningful understanding of yourself as an individual. I think a, a true... Uh, sort of effective and authentic collective would be composed of of uh, people who understand themselves as an important individual, not as some sort of um, some sort of chip off of a larger block. Because it's like uh, like we were talking about, they're just trying to fit themselves in and, and in a way they're sort of outsourcing their identity because because building a soul is hard work you know and is painful <laughs> yeah. uh, anyway this and, is something I, I really care about and think about a lot well, yeah but i think the the point you were just talking about is kind of one of the fundamental under misunderstandings that people like the the heartland institute and others of that ilk have, which is that they see this, um, striving for some sort of collectivity or some sort of communal, more communal, uh, existence within a society or whatever, however you want to phrase it. They see that as sort of a loss of their individuality when really, if you sort of have a strong enough, you know, identity or you're dedicated enough to the building of, your you know internal life then you will be able to step into that community and not lose yourself right given that that community is not you know outwardly aggressive about assimilating you or whatever it may be um unless it's like the borg from star trek or something like you, you you're going to be able to maintain some of your own identity going into that but they see it as once you are communist you kind of you know, get a barcode stamped on your ass and then you're named Dimitri like everybody else. And then you go off into the fields and, and what they can't see and what's infuriating, like anyone who can look at our American culture and call it individualistic, is just crazy because mm -hmm. I mean, most people can't change a fucking tire by themselves. We are the most vicarious culture, uh, to, to, to talk about individualism is just is just kind of nonsense. People are so dependent on 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 mass society, on mass culture, uh, just to do 
I mean, you can't get food without participating in the economy. You can't, you just, you can't live without participating in this, in the mass economy. So to talk about, um, individualism right now is just kind of crazy. Um, and, and it's the, the, the people making those claims, I mean, it's almost not even worth talking about. They're so they they misunderstand so deeply and they're so skewed on like what an individual is or, or how to be an individual. It's sort of, sort of like we were talking about a couple weeks ago about choice and how too many choices kind of obscures the shittiness of the choices. Yeah. And it's like they associate the right, the ability to choose as maybe a, a mark of an individual or an individualist society. Yeah, like I wear old spice. That's a character trait that I have. Exactly. But like you aren't, you have no say in determining what the choices are. And that's sort of my point. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, and just to, to harp on this a little bit more to, and it'll bring Naomi Klein back in a little bit is this is something that comes up a lot with uh, really hardcore uh, Trump supporters, Trumpites. Is that what we can call them? Trumpites, Trumpeters, uh, Trumpeteers, um, Trumpeteers. Yeah. They, um, so a lot of people talked about how that it's kind of become its own subculture and they've sort of, allowed their own personality to be subsumed into this greater like leader worship kind of thing. That's like mediated through Fox news all the way up to the Godhead, which is Trump himself. And it's just kind of fascinating to see that those are the people that are always, you know, hooting and hollering about, about freedom. But at the same time, they're so very much dedicated to this little like subset um, and they're kind of becoming, you know, you know, ants <laughs> marching kind of, uh, and it kind of made me think of the Naomi Klein video that she did for the intercept that I think we mentioned earlier about the straws, yeah, about the Trump straws and how the Trump administration has made tens of thousands of dollars selling plastic straws to people and how just mind boggling that is and how much it shows a lack of individualism. <laughs> among other things yeah. sanity uh but that that you have to this is the new marker of your place within this subgroup buy it now so you can quote unquote you know own the libs uh, w- <laughs> when when really all you're doing is just buying it as a marker of your status within that group right to show that hey i'm like you we're both individuals um <laughs> uh, right it's just kind of i don't know it, it's mind-boggling how how just incredibly shitty that entire ideology is and how, but yet how effective it is at the same time. You know, the Trump worship that you were pointing to, it it reminds me of a a thought I had recently where there's this phenomenon now where like grown men, people our age and even older will like wear like a Superman t-shirt or, you know, they'll have like a Marvel T-shirt or they'll just be really like the comic, the superhero craze in, in film now to like, I, to me, it feels connected to this like idea of voting for the strong man uh, of Trump, you know, 
and how to me it feels like that superhero worship and and strongman worship is like this compensation for you know it's like people feel this kind of or maybe there's like an unconscious feeling of like a lack of agency and so and so the movies the, the same way dreams function as like wish fulfillments movies are kind of like our kind of cultural dreams and everyone you see what i'm saying people sort of feel kind of powerless and helpless and so we latch onto these stories of people who are you know all powerful and then we vote for the politician selling the bullshit story of of uh of greatness you know uh and and i feel like that points to that actual lack of individualism or like the the lack of agency for an individual in this sort of mass society that we that we live in yeah like i just i can't wait until this podcast devolves into us just like raving and ranting and like scrawling manifestos and our own shit on the wall um but it's just i don't know all those things are just kind of the you know the marvel the big marvel fans which you know when i was growing up if you were well we're gonna wear a marvel t-shirt all the time people would just be like you're just a nerd like you're just a comic nerd and so all these things to me are just kind of different flavors of nerddom so it's like oh you're a trump nerd you have all your MAGA, you know, uh, collectibles. You have your action figures, right? Um, yeah. You have your Trump straws. And so you have all of the collector's items that a nerd would have. You just happen to be a nerd for a uh, man with a melting brain in his 70s who happened to fall ass backwards into the most powerful position on the planet. The the geekification of American culture is a real thing. Uh there's a great passage in Dave Eggers book, the circle about this and how, you know, not that long ago, 20 years ago, if you were the kind of kid who stayed inside and, uh, played on his calculator, you were not doing very well socially. And now like my grandma is like on her phone all day long. Um, it's just like the geeks won and and their sort of a social world has taken over <laughs> uh has just become mainstream what used to be sort of marginal and seen as less than has um become the standard and and the standard what i'm getting at is that standard is sort of it uh, has a social tendencies. It's like the geeks one. And then everybody learned that some geeks are assholes too. <laughs> you know, you grow up in the, in seeing the movies where the, the nerds at the cafeteria table together, they were always like good hearted. And maybe one of them was overly horny, but for the most part they were like good solid dudes. Right. And then now we learn like Mark Zuckerberg is just like so stupid. He's evil. That kind of thing. <laughs> Um, right. I just there was a big NPR thing today about his uh his hearing in front of Congress and you maybe you saw the video of AOC just kind of shitting on him. I I heard about this but I didn't see it. it. It's she was 
she got you know a lot of flack from people in the center and on the right because well probably on the left too because she was doing a kind of rhetorical thing where she would ask him a really kind of uh you know salacious sort of question and when he would be like oh she would go oh that's okay never mind next question and then move on to the next one (laughs) um but she you know she was just kind of really holding his feet to the fire in a way that needs to be done like and it's not it's not her being an uppity woman or anything like that or being overly liberal it's like no this dude has created a monster and has never had the ability to control it is this dude that just like got pissed off and created a, a website to rank women's hot attractiveness and then became one of the richest people on the planet. And now it's affecting our elections. Just think about how fucking like there is a, a, a nerd who got dumped and he created a website to rank his classmates attractiveness. And now it's fucking with the elections. It's insanity. Like I, you can't if you wrote that, like if 20 years ago. Or not, it maybe been like 30 bad years ago. Speculative fiction. Well, yeah, 30 years ago, you try to get that movie made, and people were like, You're stupid. Like, that was never going to happen. Well, that's a, it's so interesting when you look back in like the, the 70s and 80s uh, science fiction. No one ever predicted the internet. Well, not, you in, know, not in the stupid way that it exists now, at least. Right, right. Uh, like, who could have predicted chat roulette? <laughs> It was. It, it's too like sad and depraved to, for someone to dream it up, right? It's like right. people were dreaming up like the cool parts of the internet. They weren't thinking about the like awful shit, sad parts of it. They weren't thinking yeah. about the Reddit <laughs> chat boards where people are like. One of my favorites is uh, I keep seeing posts that like people making fun of it on Twitter, and it's a uh, cyberpunk Reddit. And it's just mm-hmm. people posting pictures of things and being like, is this cyberpunk? And it'll be like, just like the dumbest thing you can imagine that happens to have like a neon light on it. And they're like, oh, is this site? It's like a Wendy's with like a metal exterior. And they're like, hey, is this Wendy's cyberpunk? Um, so, yeah, that's it's, it's, it's pretty cool how our world ended up. That's why I think about like it ended up like yeah. <laughs> it's it's kinda we had a good run. It's pretty cool where we ended up, I guess. Um, oh goodness. Yeah, so Yeah, I, I don't know how we got pretty far afield there. We were talking about Ernest Becker and the lie of character and individualism and then uh something else marvel yeah well before we we sort of start trying to have a serious conversation again i just want to mention a part of that book of the denial of death that i was really interested in was just because it was funny to me was when becker is talking about freud and he's talking about the uh the two times that freud fainted oh yeah remember this and it's like they were such like they make freud sound like just such a fucking like pansy like he so you know um young is talking about these bog mummies and freud passes out and he's like oh i just i felt like you had a death desire toward me to end my life so i fainted and it's like holy shit dude like how how sensitive can you be really he was doing mounds of cocaine of you know lightheaded or something smoking cigars constantly it probably had like a you know his lung capacity of like 10 percent 
<laughs> and then the other time was when they're talking about ancient Egypt. And it was the same kind of, they both involved him thinking like Young was going to like supplant his legacy and psychoanalysis wasn't going to become the biggest thing in the world. Uh, it's just, I don't know, it's fascinating to me yeah. that you can be like, Someone who a lot of people consider to be like one of the greatest geniuses to have ever lived, but then he's, you know, passing out because someone suggests he's not the hottest shit on the block. Yeah. There's a, have you ever seen a dangerous method that uh, yeah. Cronenberg movie? Yeah. I, that I don't like it because I don't like looking at Kara Knightley's jaw. <laughs> yeah. She goes for it. Uh, but that there, one of those scenes is depicted in that movie where, where Freud faints when he's talking to Jung. Oh, yeah. And I, I just want to, I want to add that it's, it's not that I think Kara Knightley is, is unattractive or anything. It's just, she does like a weird jaw thing in that movie. Yeah. She's, she's like, like, like sticking it out and it's just like, it, it looks gross to me. Yeah. It's hard to look at. Cause she's, you know, she's getting spanked up. Um, any, <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, so back to this, so this documentary we haven't talked about in a while. Um, yeah, like, it's a documentary. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of all you it's can say about fine. it. Yeah. I mean, it's good. It's, I don't know. Ideologically, I actually prefer it to definitely an inconvenient truth. The 11th hour, maybe. But especially those part, sort of sections where it's her kind of trying to shoehorn some stuff from the book into it when she's like mm -hmm. laying out these different ideologies that are at work. And at the end, she's trying to give some sort of semblance of hope and, and a, a direction for moving forward and all that kind of stuff. I think it I think that works. But for the most part, it's just kind of, you know, boilerplate. Yeah, it's kind of stock documentary. If If you imagine what a documentary looks like. This is, that's exactly what this movie looks like. Yeah. Uh, let me just say, I'm good. Uh, like, I'm happy that this is the last, uh, week of October. <laughs> I'm ready for some fucking fiction. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. I mean, uh, Peter and the farm definitely stand out. Yeah. Um, and when we, when we come around to doing like our top, whatever list of the movies it, it's going to be pretty high up on on my list um but yeah I'm, I'm looking forward to it because it's gotten to the point where all documentaries are starting to look the same to me they're all just kind of like one long you know film about the end of the world yeah and uh we were texting earlier and I, one of us said about either the movie or naomi klein's uh video the trump straw video we said in a text one of us said not it's not bad and i thought about that <laughs> phrase and that's like a good phrase for all of these documentaries we've watched it's like they're not bad and they, they're not doing harm but i can't say that it seems like they're doing a whole lot of good either yeah it's they're good if you're someone who is looking for a kind of low impact way of learning about some of these things, uh, sort of opening a doorway to them, then they're fine. Like they're, they're great for that. Uh, but if you're trying to sort of, I don't know, get some sort of deeper meaning out of them, except for Peter and the farm, there's a lot about life in there, a lot about life and death going on. 
Well, and uh, and Peter and the Farm is so specific. It's like yeah. it, uh, it. Ha- I mean, that's that's why we remember that movie, and that's why it's so affecting. Is that it's about this guy, and all these other ones are just so broad and general, and the scope is so wide. It's just. Um, it's like it's like these documentaries are just sort of a Wikipedia page, you know, <laughs> yeah. that you can you can browse over and get a get a gist of what's going on. Um, yeah, and that's kind of the thing about creating any form of art about climate change is that because it's a global issue, you can fall into that kind of trap of I need to present every viewpoint, I need to go everywhere and talk to everyone about it. And when you try to do that, you end up with a documentary like this, which is perfectly fine, but it's not, it's not very memorable. Um, everything kind of blurs together after a while. So it's sort of how do you, how do you deal with something that's a global issue in a specific kind of way, right? It kind of takes me back to, to, to Gun Island, where I feel like Ghosh is trying to deal with a global issue in a fairly specific way. Um, yeah. And you know, you can debate about how effectively he does that, but it's, it's a good kind of crack at it. Yeah, it seems like with this changes everything, I got the feeling that this wanted to be a documentary about corporations uh, stepping on the rights of indigenous people's access to their land. It seems like it spends the most time on that, and it probably would have been a better documentary if that would have been the whole focus of the movie. Yeah, and and it could have gone into more depth. We could have spent more time getting to know those indigenous activists who were some of the most compelling people that you meet in the documentary. You Did, had- do, do you remember the scene where there's, I'm not sure which uh, tribe it is, but they're performing some sort of protest in a mall. Yes. I wanted that to know more so about that. That was so surreal. Uh, yeah. And it's, it's, it's like something nice, you see in Blade Runner or something. Yeah. It's, and it's a nice kind of, it, was that cyberpunk? <laughs> it's a it's a strong visual right of having all these indigenous activists doing sort of traditional kind of drum and song stuff to protest inside of a shopping mall yeah um and i would imagine like i don't know but i, I think the biggest mall in the world is in edmonton in alberta mm. so uh maybe that's where they were to sort of protest um it's you, all one big mall man <laughs> And you learn about um, the, and again, I can't, I can't keep the the, the tribes straight. Uh, and I think this was in, this might have been in Montana. I can't remember, but they uh, are trying to. Yes, yeah, it was in Montana. They're trying to get, set up the, this reservation so that it's completely solar powered. They have that kind of the the shop and the guy who is saying like it's his goal to make sure that indigenous America becomes solar powered and renewable before mainstream America. Mm. Um, which is like, a, I don't know. That's, I think that's a very worthwhile movement. I think if I could spearhead something like that, I would be very pleased and, and happy to do that work. Um, if I could like put solar panels on the roof of the house that I don't own and, and you know, become that dude in the neighborhood who's the solar power guy. Right. <clears throat> yeah, there. Uh, I guess it was ice on fire. There was some attention given to like 
solar solar energy it got kind of got me pumped up to like i would love to well, i was googling earlier uh solar panels yeah and to, to buy them of any kind of size that would let you do anything sort of legitimate with them it's pretty expensive um you can buy little ones that can like charge your phone or whatever but uh if you want to like power your whole house you got to get the 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 big mother truckers you know what this is weird but i've thought about this multiple times since we watched this movie i want to figure out how to get the like soul from uh soylent green set up to where if i want to read i have to ride my stationary bike and (laughs) power my reading lamp you know Oh, there's got to uh, be some sort of converter thing, yeah. something like attached to a battery and you can charge the battery and then use it. Yeah. No, that'd be anyway, cool. That'd be freaking cool. Get a big hamster wheel and just do that. <laughs> uh, here's another thing I noticed in the movie or that I thought about because of the movie. She talks about sacrifice zones. Yes. And that I just had never really thought very much about the phrase sacrifice zones and the kind of rhetoric of that. Um, it It's an interesting phrase because it allows the person who uses that phrase to imply that they are the ones making the sacrifice. You know, if, if I call something a sacrifice zone, it's like, I am remorseful and regretful because because I am sacrificing something that is important to me. Yeah. But but really the people making these decisions of like what is a sacrifice zone are never the ones impacted by it. Um, yeah. And so it's not a sacrifice given the definition of a sacrifice, you know, sort of giving something up for a for a greater cause. Uh, you are just destroying someone else's land yeah that's not a sacrifice that's just destruction yeah destruction zones disposable zones in that you know that word also implies that you have the authority to decide that that thing is going to be sacrificed right um so yeah that that whole term is just you know deeply depressing for a number of reasons um and, and, you know, her kind of anecdote to a lot of this is collective action. I mean, we see the the group in India that actually succeeds um, and people start stop pursuing building a power plant uh, on their their land. Um, we see in the, the section in Greece that we haven't really talked about yet is a good kind of shout out to Naomi Klein's earlier work in the Shock Doctrine where you have Greece that's undergoing austerity and this financial collapse. And so these uh, international corporations are, in this case, it's a Canadian, I forget the name of it, a Canadian uh, mining uh, company, tries to come in and exploit that and say, hey, we'll bring jobs and prosperity to this area if you let us go in here and mine. Um, Just go, like disaster capitalism, like never ceases to amaze me. Uh, and yeah. how quickly they'll clear all of the poor people, all of the people that aren't white out of an area and rebuild it into something that is nothing like it was before. I mean, it happened in New Orleans. Um, right. You know, it, it's happened. Uh, Klein's one of her recent books is about 
Puerto Rico and the oh, disaster yeah. capitalism there. So I think it's called the Battle for Paradise. Yeah. So, um, you know, if you live in an area and one of these things happens and you're not at the top of the, the totem pole, so to speak, then chances are you'll get displaced permanently. Um, Your zone will be sacrificed. Yeah, exactly. Um, so there's, to sort of keep talking about Klein a little bit, there's an article, her most recent article from The Intercept. So she she does pretty regular work for The Intercept. And this mm-hmm. is called Only a Green New Deal Can Douse the Fires of Ecofascism. And it's really a chapter from her new book, On Fire, The Burning Case for a Green New Deal. Um, So it's kind of a promotional thing, but at the same time, she's making a lot of good points in this chapter. And didn't Um, didn't you say that book is kind of a compilation of articles she's published? uh, No. I don't know. I I think I heard that. I think I heard that that book is actually essays, like collected essays that she's published in the last like 10 years. Okay. Uh, But I I could be wrong. I don't know where I heard that. Well, uh, in this one, she's talking and, you know, I'll just hit on these high points that I thought were interesting. So she spends the first part of it talking about these um, sort of white terrorist attacks. You know, Anders Breivik in in Norway, Dylan Roof in in the U.S., the Christchurch shooter, all that kind of stuff. And here specifically, she's talking about the Christchurch shooter, which kind of uh, didn't break the mold, but kind of was one of the first ones where in his manifesto was talking about how he did this because of the climate, (laughs) because climate change and immigrants are only going to make it worse. So therefore, he thought murdering a bunch of Muslims was, was the solution. And so she writes, to be clear, the killer was not driven by environmental concern. His motivation was unadulterated racist hate. But ecological breakdown was one of the forces that seemed to be stoking that hatred, much as we are seeing it act as an accelerant for hatred and violence and armed conflicts around the world. My fear is that unless something significant changes in how our societies rise to the ecological crisis, we are going to see this kind of white power ecofascism emerge with much greater frequency as a ferocious rationalization for refusing to live up to our, our collective climate responsibilities. Um, and then she makes this point that a lot of it has to do with the fact that most global emissions come from the richest 10% of the world's population, whereas the effects of climate change will um, disproportionately affect the poorest people in the world, the, the, mm-hmm. the sacrifice zones that we were talking about. Um, so she continues in any moral universe guided by basic human rights principles, these victims of a crisis of other people's making would be owed justice. That justice would, would and should take many forms. First and foremost, justice requires that the wealthiest 10 to 20% stop the underlying cause of this deepening crisis by lowering emissions as rapidly as technology allows. Justice also demands that we heed the call for a Marshall Plan for the Earth that Bolivia's climate negotiator called for a decade ago a decade ago, to roll out resources in the global south so communities can fortify themselves against extreme weather, pull themselves out of poverty with clean tech, and protect their ways of life wherever possible. Um, and then she continues, and then she, she drops this, this statement that I think is, is uh, worth sharing. Uh, in other words... Climate disruption demands a reckoning on the terrain most repellent to conservative minds, wealth redistribution, resource sharing, and reparations. And a growing number of people on the hard right realize this all too well 
which is why they are developing various twisted rationales for why none of this can take place. And then she, you know, talks about the idea that it's a socialist or communist conspiracy, um, the idea that it's an excuse for invasion of out, you know, upstanding white Christian Western nations, all, all this sort of crap. Um, but I just think it's, it, we, uh, you know, I, I bring this up a lot because it's one of the things that I worry about most with climate change, this idea of it's either some form of eco-socialism, eco-justice, or it's absolute barbarism and the slaughter of, you know, countless thousands at the borders of the nations that happen to have the upper hand, uh, that happen to have the water and the uh, bearable temperatures and things like that. Well, it's it reminds me of how people talk. You know, they say you don't really know who you are until you have faced a crisis. Uh, and that's true of individuals. I think it's true of couples. And, and maybe it's true of countries, too, where um, you don't really know what you're made of until – you face a, a crisis, and I think we're seeing what we're made of here in America, which is a bunch of fucking racists. Uh, because as soon as we are confronted with with uh, a crisis of our own, man, like like you said, these twisted rationales keep coming to the surface. Uh, it is not by accident that Trump was elected um it's not by accident that these racially motivated shootings keep happening these are revelations of our deeply flawed american character um and and when you're talking about something as um something as like radically disruptive as climate change, you're, I think we're only going to see more of that, uh, of that sort of lack of character revealed. Uh, I mean, you just, if you start with an ideology where people who look like you, um, are more deserving of, of human rights, which, is deeply ingrained in, in a lot of Americans. Uh, we going to just shout out to Clint Eastwood and, and those sort of movies, you know, uh, that we talked about where you see that ideology peddled. But t- I mean, that's, those were huge problems before climate change, uh, just with sort of run of the mill immigration. But when you have like climate refugees happening, that, that ideology is going to get cranked up to 11 and it's going to be a fucking shit show. Yeah. And I don't know, just you think about places like Bangladesh, which, which features prominently in, in gun Island. Uh, and it's a, a small country with one of the world's highest populations. Um, so it's a country full of one people that are predominantly Brown and also its official religion is Islam. And it's also going to be one of the nation's hardest hit, already being hardest hit by climate change. So where do all these brown Muslim people go? Do they go next door to India where, you know, anti-Muslim 
bigotry is becoming the official government policy under Modi? Um, you know, do they try to go to Myanmar where the Rohingya have already been genocided while people kind of watched and felt bad, but didn't do anything? Uh, do they go to China where they put Muslims in concentration camps because they're against the official state ideology? It's just like all of these things, you know, and that's just one example. I mean, you can also talk about people fleeing from Central America who, if you want to be, you know, one of these Bible thumping evangelical Americans, they're Christian too. And they're coming here to try to work and survive and contribute. Uh, but because they speak a different language and look different than you and you see them as they're somehow going to come and take your job working at your dad's speedboat dealership. Um, <laughs> so they need to be kept out. Um, it's just, and it's just really disgusting to see. And like, I see it in some of my students sometimes and I'm just like, you're too young to have given up on humanity. <laughs> like it's just, it's, it's not, it's a little scary, but it's mostly just deeply disheartening to see someone be so just inherently kind of cruel and not even inherently. Like I'm sure that they've been, it's been sort of fostered within them by, you know, those around them. But, Oh yeah, it's that is a, something you learn for sure. It's just, I can't imagine I don't know. I just can't imagine being 18 and having the opinion that immigrants should not, that we should build a wall to keep the immigrants out. Like I just can't, I can't fathom that. I don't know. That's a, that's a failure of identification on my part. And it, yeah. And it's like, like you're saying, it's, it's so disheartening when it's like young people, you know, that, that old cliche of like the young radical is, is kind of going away. It seems like, I don't know if I've ever met, and this is not me saying I'm a super radical dude, but I don't know <laughs> if I've ever tubular. met a student. I don't know if I've ever had a student, a college student in a class that was like more, uh, you know, that would like, that made me feel old in terms of like your positions, on my things. position. You know what I'm saying? No. And, yeah. Totally uh, like I've, uh, you get told when, if you have sort of, especially in the South, uh, if you're lean, uh, to the left or lie down to the left, you get told, uh, you, you know, you'll grow out of this when like your family hears your position or, you know, some, you get a job yeah, you get out you the get, real or, world. or you get a job and, and, you know, your coworkers figure out that you like, you know, voted for Obama or something, uh, which now like, like voting for Obama, it's like you voted for Reagan. Right. Right. It's, uh, yeah, it, it, it's just so, and, and just like, I don't understand how anybody lives. Well, actually I can, if you like are, are born with a silver spoon crammed up your ass, I, I sort of get that, I guess, but I, I don't get how you can grow up middle-class or below vanishing middle-class or below lower class in this country and not feel the sort of pain and fucking just despair at some of these things that happen. Like, how do you not feel, you know, when your grandparent goes into medical bankruptcy because they had a stroke or some shit? Like, how do you not want to fucking grab your senator, you know, by the scruff of the neck and like fling them down the Capitol steps? Like, I don't understand how people 
don't feel that way. I don't know. Well, the, the supreme irony of all this, like immigration rhetoric, is that somehow people have been convinced that poor people fleeing climate crisis or political crises or, you know, violent regimes are the enemy, uh, are the economic enemy. And they're being convinced of this by a New York based billionaire. Yeah. You know, who would like, literally like who, who is the actual enemy or part of the actual enemy in terms of like people facilitating economic crises in America. Yeah. Like it, it, a dude that if you were on fire in front of him, he wouldn't piss on you to put you out. Like, and you are like, oh no, you know, well, daddy said that they're bad people. It's just fucking, I can't, I can't, <laughs> I just, just can't even, I just can't. Like I think about it sometimes and I, and, and again, it's especially disheartening when I get like an 18 year old who's like, well, you know, Trump's done a lot of good stuff. I'm like, like what? What's, what's what? Like, okay. Yeah. Unemployment. Trump stakes. <laughs> it's like yeah like employment the numbers are good right now but do you feel a change to the positive when it comes to that as a thing it's like even if all these things come back as like you know uh, quantitatively better like oh well, unemployment's lower well do you feel that impact in your everyday life like do you feel like you live in a stronger country and i feel like that's kind of the divide because when it comes to the trump people they do they're like, oh, no, yeah, I can just tell things are different now. And it's because now their racism is sanctioned. But for most people, there's not a change there because, you know, Uber hired 10,000 more drivers. Right. And so unemployment went down. It's like that's not that's not a career. Like that's not a job that's going to take anybody anywhere. I mean, it's going to take a lot of people places, but <laughs> not the not the driver <laughs> in a sort of ideological sense. Uber's not going to take you anywhere. Uh yeah, a, a real real unemployment numbers are hidden. Uh, this is something the journalist uh, Chris Hedges talks a lot about. Uh, you know, he often is explaining how I think it's pe people who are no longer looking for employment because they've been unable to find it. Like if they've been looking for over a month or two or something like that, they're like not included in the unemployment statistic. <laughs> and so you become invisible. Exactly. And so, you know, if they say, Oh, unemployment 7%, you know, it's, it's usually like twice that in, in reality. Yeah. I just, uh, I just, I say this, I have a refrain for when I get, when I go to the dark place, uh, about the government where I say they just want me to give them all of my money and then just fucking die <laughs> like that. That's all they want for me. It's like, here's everything I own. And then I just, just lay like down women, and man. die. <laughs> um, all they want from you is your man juice. Just, they just want me for my pimp juice. Um, so yeah, I don't know that, that this is kind of not related to the film. I think we, we, we let that ship sell a while ago. Um, whatever because yeah what it <laughs> it's the, it's anthropocene's uh slogan fucking whatever whatever man who cares none of this matters um so i just want to i guess we'll end 
our discussion of this. I have the, like I said, I have the Naomi Klein's book in front of me. This changes everything. And there's just a quick little passage here that I think wraps up everything I like about her and her work uh, pretty in a nice uh, little package with a, a big bow on it. It says, fundamentally, the task is to articulate not just an alternative set of policy proposals, but an alternative worldview to rival the one at the heart of the ecological crisis, embedded in interdependence rather than hyper-individualism, reciprocity rather than dominance, and cooperation rather than hierarchy. This is required not only to create a political context to dramatically lower emissions, but also to help us cope with the disasters we can no longer avoid. Because in the hot and stormy future we have already made inevitable through our past emissions, an unshakable belief in the equal rights of all people, and a capacity for deep compassion will be the only thing standing between civilization and barbarism. This is another lesson from the transformative movements of the past. All of them understood that the process of shifting cultural values through somewhat ephemeral and di- though somewhat ephemeral and difficult to quant- quantify was central to their work. And so they dreamed in public, showed humanity a better version of itself, modeled different values in their own behavior, and in the process liberated the political imagination and rapidly altered the sense of what was possible. They were also unafraid of the language of morality, to give the pragmatic cost-benefit arguments a rest and speak of right and wrong, of love and indignation. And this kind of, it kind of goes back to things we talked about, you know, forever ago of um, how do you quantify or how do you sort of scientifically prove that climate change is bad Mm -hmm. i think was was kind of the way i think you put it that way like a long time ago and for it kind of boils down to at the core of it you have to make more or less a, a moral argument you have to use that kind of language and not be afraid to come off as idealistic right that's become an insult of oh you're too idealistic. It's like okay yeah, but what what's the alternative? Being pragmatic is is to you know walk into the sea. <laughs> so why why not? Yeah, well, and there's there's a sort of conformity inherent in in what people mean when they say pragmatism. What they mean is accept things as they are and work within that system, uh, which is the very thing that's needing to be changed is sort of what the system consists in. Yeah. And it's just, I think you have to be willing to just question everything from a sort of foundational standpoint and just be willing to, to go to those places that are seen as being, you know, overly dramatic or whatever to, to quote my favorite drill tweet. You have to be willing to face God and walk backwards into hell you have to be willing to, to do those kinds of things. Um, and, you know, I, maybe I've told my, told the story before, but at my dissertation defense, uh, one of my readers was, uh, man, how, what a dick do I sound like? I must sound like an asshole right now. Like, I have my dissertation defense. Uh, but one of my <laughs> readers. you're not talking about kale like last week. But shit, yeah, I just keep, I'm going to keep adding to like things that ruin my street cred. But uh, one of my readers was, his questions boiled down to more or less sort of what gives you the right to be so optimistic? Like, why are you so optimistic? What, what does the material outcome of these changes look like? What does this better future look like? 
and you know i had a big stupid answer then but uh it kind of the answer i keep falling back on is who gives a shit it's better than what it looks like now so you know give it a shot kids let's Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) let's try yeah i i think i i get the feeling that older people have a have a tough time really wholeheartedly getting into the full effects of climate change because it problematizes their entire lives. Yeah, um, that's you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, mine it, too. It's yeah, but it sort of says your childhood was not good, uh, was full of a, you know, existed in a paradigm that was harmful and, and no one wants to hear that. Um, uh, I, I was thinking a lot about that reading an essay by Marilyn Robinson, who from essay to essay, really from paragraph to paragraph, I find brilliant and infuriating. <laughs> um, and she was talking about, uh, she was mentioning the sort of growing concern about climate change and basically her point was getting all scared is not going to help anything and it's just like that's essentially you know someone who's having like a panic attack you're just saying calm down it's like that shut up boomer i mean it's not like it's not like a um i don't think climate angst is like a conscious choice anyone's making so to say oh it's it's uh it's not productive to be uh, scared. Well, I don't think anyone wants to be scared. It's just a reaction to the facts, you know. Yeah. Uh, but but I I felt like in that comment, it was just like it felt like that was like the most uh, acceptable way she could say something negative about climate change. Which she and and I you sort of I got the feeling she wanted to say something more, you know but knew that it, w- it would be frowned upon or something. Um, but not that she's super concerned about saying things that are frowned upon because she's a Calvinist, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And uh, I mean, something that gives me hope is, is kind of where the documentary ended, where the book ends of talking about this collective action and how it's, it is catching on, right? They're, they're this, these movements and these protesters, happening and they're having some kind of effect and i saw a story today um or i guess a series of stories i was talking about how right now we have you know i think more mass protest movements going on in different places around the world than they did or since we have uh since like the 60s right and you think of the 60s as this time of great sort of uprising and, and rebellion and all that sort of stuff. And, and right now it's definitely happening all over the world. I mean, in Chile, um, you know, in uh, lots of places in the, in the Middle East and Tunisia and Egypt and uh, all these sorts of places, we have these uprisings taking place. People are kind of standing up and saying enough of this horseshit. And depending on what it is that sets them off, most of the time it's some kind of like government policy that, Uh, has a negative impact on their everyday life and so it's like Mm -hmm. okay my everyday life is already kind of shit and you're coming in and telling me that now it's going to be even worse like this is the last straw um yeah it's like the woman um i I guess it's in 
is it in Greece in the film where she it's completely subtitled, but she is pissed off about the uh, poison in the air. She's talking about how they have to wear, you know, the stuff on their face to, to keep from being poisoned. Mm-hmm. And she's like, I would gladly give my life tomorrow if the, you know, to put this, put an end to this. Uh, and I feel like that woman's rage is an appropriate level of rage. Yeah. I mean, you think of like at how the Arab Spring starts as you have, uh, I'm going to butcher his name, but, but Bouaziz in Tunisia, this guy that was just like a street vendor who the government just keeps shitting on him and keeps shitting on him. And then eventually he's like, okay, nothing I can do. Lights himself on fire in front of the government offices and sets off a, you know, series of rebellions and a major region of the world. Like that's, and I'm not saying go set yourself on fire, but you know, things like that are happening. Like people are getting inspired and, and getting that, that, you know, passion in them to go and do things. Um, and you know, people keep shitting on them. I mean, plenty of people, uh, would love to shut up Greta Thunberg. Um, but you know, she's out there doing her thing, spreading the word, doing the Lord's work, kicking ass. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and that's all I got to say about that. I'd really it's been a while since you've remixed anything. I feel like it'd be <laughs> nice if we could get a remix of that uh, Severe County guy. Oh my god. I I don't know how to do it without it like I I'd have to be very careful <laughs> in putting that together. I feel like um maybe I'll like mash it up with Greta Thunberg saying something poignant. Uh, so Next week we're back to we're back on our bullshit. We're back on uh, fiction, fictionalized accounts of things on film, and we're going to be looking at a pair of films. So we're we're doing another sort of double feature, uh, but it's it's a little a little bit strange. But I think it's going to be really productive for us to talk about. We're going to be relatively at, speaking. <laughs> yeah, uh, we're going to be looking at from 1972 the film Deliverance. So, uh, lots of good sodomy in that. And then we're going to be pairing that with from 2004, the American classic. I think this just got a criterion release without a paddle. Oscar sweeping. Mm-hmm. Stephen Brill's magnum opus <laughs> with, well, that's heavyweights we talked about, right? Well, it's the know, same guy that directed heavyweights. So there's a thick connection. Without a paddle is like the Godfather part two. It's like maybe better. <laughs> But without the original, you know, heavyweights, uh, it's hard to compare it, yeah. hard to understand its brilliance. So in both movies, we have a group of urban also he directed Mr. Deeds. Uh, that, that's a that's OK. That's an OK. That's movie. the Godfather part three. <laughs> so uh, in both cases, we have some urban dudes getting together and going out to the woods to to become manly and find themselves and then running up against different uh bad things that happened to them i'm a huge matthew lillard guy oh yeah summer catch was he in that he was pretty solid baseball movie man that's maybe the worst depiction of like actual (laughs) baseball play my my dad and i always like rank baseball movies clear like the clear standout is moneyball in terms of like depiction of you know professional baseball um 
up there somewhere for the most part is uh, for love of the game, uh, despite John C. Riley. Uh, <laughs> but Summer Catch is always at the bottom of that list. It's a it. I mean, the movie is brilliant. It rules. But the uh, the play, like the gameplay, is uh, brutal. And Matthew Lillard may be the worst part. I do like how it ends with uh, Freddie Prinze Jr. getting into the major leagues and then King Griffey Jr. takes him yard on his first pitch. I did like that, Uh, especially because it was the Reds, King Griffey Jr., and uh, it might have been like one of seven home runs he hit in his time in Cincinnati. (laughs) That was one of the like three days he wasn't on the DL. The dude, what's his, I can't remember the character's name, Freddie Prinze Jr., he, uh, he he's got a a perfect game or a no hitter or something going, and he fucking leaves the game to like go be with Jessica Beale. And yeah, it's Jessica Beale, but it's like it's absurd. Like, why can't you just finish, <laughs> just finish the game? Um, yeah. Anyway, like, it's I mean. That's the power of love. That's that that's film the, is really about the human yeah. condition and the power of love. That's what that uh, Huey and Lewis song the was about. New England uh, summer baseball. So next week, summer catch, um, <laughs> with minor reference to without a paddle. Yeah, and, and deliverance. And Don't deliverance. forget deliverance. It's very important. So yeah, that's it. Go watch a bunch of baseball movies. That's our our spinoff podcast. What would that podcast called be called? Stilling Home. <laughs> Leading off. No, it need to be like in the hole, some sort of. <laughs> uh, on deck. There we go. Uh, uh, the uh, shit. Double header. I have you. Uh, oh, that be yeah, you watch two baseball movies and compare them. Have you been following the World Series? Because I have not. I don't know, I know it's, what the fuck's going on. I know it's 2-2 after it looked like the Nationals were going to sweep it. But no, I haven't watched a single moment of it. Yeah. I've been too busy watching the NBA, baby. Some round ball. <laughs> uh, are we, maybe we do some uh, anthroposports. <laughs> Anthropospheres. Different spherical <laughs> objects. Okay, I'm going to stop it now. We just put Anthropo in front of anything, and then we are justified in bullshitting like, about it for It's now. like McDonald's. We just keep putting it and slapping it on to stuff. Yeah.